Father, as we come to your word today, God, I I come with the realization that I am just a man. I'm a fallible man. And that there is only so much that I can do. But I ask, Lord, that you would do the work that I cannot do. That you would open eyes, that you would open ears, that you would allow us, Father, to see our need for Christ in this passage today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you, we are in Genesis chapter 4. One of the things that I love so much about the Bible is that it is always relevant. This is the most relevant book in the world ever. This is such a relevant book. And the reason that the Bible is relevant is because it speaks to and it explains and it offers the only solution to all the problems that we see in the world today. Basically, every single problem that we face, if you want to boil it down, every single problem that we face finds its roots in the events that took place in these opening chapters in the book of Genesis. Why is there suffering, or war, or poverty, or injustice, or keep on going down the line, family dysfunction? Why are there problems in the world? Ultimately, it traces back to sin. Ultimately, this is where we find the roots of all these things, is in the opening chapters of Genesis, immediately after sin enters into creation. And yet, as Christians, we look at these problems, we we know that there are these problems out there, and we don't just turn our eyes away from it, we don't deny that it exists, we acknowledge that these problems exist, but we do so in light of the fact that God has promised that the day is coming when it will all come to an end. All the suffering, all the injustice, all the family dysfunction, all the problems will come to an end. Now as we continue in our study of Genesis today, we're going to see the first city on earth be established. And there you go. The Bible's relevant because we have cities. In fact, we all live in a city. And this passage speaks to our situation and it gives us principles which we need to learn to apply to our understanding and our attitudes toward Life in the city, in a, in a densely populated, civilized society that's making great technological and social advancements, there's, some, there's a worldview that we need to have as we look at the social and technological advancements that are all around us. The passage that we'll be looking at today comes from Genesis chapter 4, verses 16 to 26, and I've called this message, The Wrath of Cain and the Grace of God. No, I'm not a Star, War, uh, Star Trek uh, nerd or anything, but the wrath of Cain, it just has a good feel to it. We have to understand that while Genesis is a picture of brokenness that has plagued the world and the universe since the first sin was committed, it's also an amazing, amazing book of story after story of God's grace. Starting with the fall, we see that, that sin is an awful thing. And yet, while God deals with the sin 
every single time. Throughout the book of Genesis, he offers grace to some degree. So the overarching principle in this passage is that prosperity without faithfulness unto God is worthless. Prosperity without faithfulness unto God is worthless. Now just to set the stage for us a little bit, God created the world in complete perfection. This is what we saw in Genesis chapter 1. It was flawless. All of creation was flawless. With the power of his word, God spoke everything into existence, and it was all very good. He created a man, and he placed the man in a garden in, a, in the land of Eden where he was to live all of his life theocentrically, that is, with God at the center of every part of his life. And he gave the man a helper, a wife, with whom he was instructed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But this man, whose name was Adam, rebelled against God, and he and his wife disobeyed God. And as a result of their sin, all of creation fell into a state of decay. It was all affected. The wage of sin is death. So death entered into creation because of sin. And yet, God showed his grace. He allowed Adam and his wife, who would be named Eve, to live, driving them out of the Garden of Eden to prevent them from coming back in and going to the Tree of Life because if they ate from the Tree of Life, they would live forever. And if they lived forever, they would be sinners forever. They would be eternally separated from God And God promised that he would give the woman an offspring who would defeat death and sin. Adam and his wife had children. They were obedient to God's command to multiply and fill the earth. And we met two of them in the previous passage. Their names were Cain and Abel. And when the time came for Cain and Abel to present their sacrifices unto God, when the time came for them to go and worship God, Abel presented his offering with faith And Cain didn't. So Abel's offering was acceptable and pleasing to God, but Cain's was not. In retaliation against God for the rejection of his offering, Cain murdered Abel. And God sent Cain out to wander as a fugitive for the rest of his life, giving him some mark that would protect him from being killed with the wrath of God upon the person who would dare to kill this person that came uh, this person that God said not to kill and this is where our passage today begins it begins with God having just sent Cain out to wander as a fugitive for the rest of his life now as we come to this passage verse 16 immediately gives us kind of a funny picture it's it's ironic Cain was sentenced to wander as a fugitive for the rest of his days but then it says this Genesis chapter 4 verse 16 Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Hmm. He went away and settled after being told that he was to wander for the rest of his life. And the irony here is that Nod, in the original language, actually means wander. So Cain settled in the land of wandering. And it's not that he was physically wandering, but he was still spiritually wandering. He was spiritually lost 
So this land of Nod, this land of wandering, was east of the land called Eden. In the ancient world, the eastern direction was seen as the top of the world, which, uh, which we realize when we look at ancient maps. Every ancient map from this region had east at the top of the map instead of north. Why east? Well, there's a lot of speculation that goes into that, but the best guess is that because uh, that's the direction that the sun would rise from. Biblically, however, moving eastward is very significant. It's symbolic. It's usually representing things like sin and rebellion and defiance against God and rejection of God. According to Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, when God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden, which way were they driven? They were driven east, right. They were driven eastward. In Leviticus chapter 1, we see that certain parts of the burnt offering were to be thrown in which direction of the altar? To the east, to the east of the altar. The entrance of the tabernacle where God was worshipped faced east, which meant that in order to enter it, you had to go which way? You had to go west, right. You had to go westward. Abraham, which way did he travel? West. He had God's blessing and he went from the region that would become Babylon. He went westward. Fast forward to the prophets. According to Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11, when God removed his glory from Israel, spelling sure destruction for Israel, he departed to the east. The exile to Babylon was to the east, eastern region. It was from the land that they were in back to the land of Babylon, which was basically a picture of the undoing of everything that was established, everything that they advanced toward with Abraham. To the east of Israel is a desert that has a scorching hot wind that renders the region almost impossible to live in, but it thwarts basically every human effort to survive and to thrive in a comfortable way. This hot wind destroys crops. This hot wind dries up every source of drinkable water. It's understandable then that the east came to symbolize God's judgment. It was a picture of God's judgment. Now, this was both literal and symbolic. It was, things were literally east. When the Bible says east, it was literally east, but there was significance to that. So with all that in mind, Cain's move eastward is a sure picture of God's judgment against him. It's also a picture of Cain's continual resistance, continual rebellion, continual sin toward God. After all, he was sentenced to wander for the rest of his life, and yet he he sort of defies God here. He sets out to prove God wrong, settling in the land of wandering. Cain is his own God. Cain writes the rules for Cain. Cain lives by his own rules with no regard for what God would have to say. And he's going to establish for himself. He's determined that as he goes out, he's going to establish for himself a reputation and an existence in which he doesn't even need God. God said that the ground isn't going to work for him. The ground isn't going to be able to sustain him or provide nourishment for him anymore. And it sounds like, wow, that, that's, that's really harsh. Well, Cain goes out and he decides that he's going to make it all work anyway. And these are the conditions that set the stage for Cain to build the foundation for the world's first city. 
So we read in verses 17 and 18. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. So Cain moves eastward. Rebellion, sin. He settles in the land of wandering, and he and his wife have a child. And Cain names the city after his first son, Enoch, which means dedicated or consecrated. Dedicated to what? Consecrated to what? To the glory of Cain, apparently. How else was Cain's name going to live on? I imagine that Cain had no idea that we would be here like 6,000 years later talking about his sin. He didn't know his name was going to live on and it wouldn't be through a city. We're supposed to see that it's significant that the first city was consecrated and dedicated to man rather than to God. It was for the glory of a man, not the glory of God. And you'll notice here that there's a generational chain that we see put together here. And this chain consists of six links, six names, six generations of Cain's descendants. But who's counting, right? Well, we are, because the number six is very significant. The number seven, we saw it was characterized, it was all through Genesis chapter 1. Seven, 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 seven. All these things are listed in, in sevens, and it represents God's perfect creation, his perfection, his perfect work. The number six represents man's inherent rebellion against God. The number six represents sinfulness, godlessness, and that is what represents, that's what we see, that's what characterizes the city of Enoch. It is godless. And yet, while the city is godless and stands rebellious and defiant and hating toward God, they prosper. They prosper. They're doing really well for themselves, but only outwardly, only externally. They are dead in their sins spiritually. They do not worship God on God's terms. They don't worship God at all. And yet, as we're going to see, they make these incredible social and technological advancements. So we continue, and we take a look at these advancements that are made in this culture in verses 19 to 22. We read, And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and harp uh, and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. So, what we see here is that as the city rises, As the city progresses, as they advance, it advances socially, yes, but it declines morally. 
This pattern has repeated over and over and over again throughout history in one civilization after another. Civilization rises and morally it goes down with a corresponding rate. Empires come with this huge wave of prosperity, of financial well-being that's matched only by its own godlessness. Cain was godless, but here's the thing. All these people who follow after him, you know, they're not doing the same thing. They didn't, they're not murdering their brothers until we get to Lamech. We'll get to that. But all these other people, they're, they're not murdering people in cold blood. But the thing is, you don't need to shed someone else's blood to be as godless as Cain. You don't need to shed somebody else's blood to be as godless as Cain. You can be a very moral person. You can do very good things for society and for yourself, for your family. You can be very prosperous and very moral and yet be entirely godless. And that's what happens here. That's what we see here. The city of Enoch, founded by the world's first murderer, produces godlessness. And yet they prosper. They prosper and they make these enormous technological and social advancements. So if, if, you're, if you're looking at this passage, you see that we've got like one name after another, after another. There are all these names in this passage. And that should cause us to stop and think. Who isn't listed? Whose name do we not see represented here? That's the point. That's the point. Where is God? Where is the Lord? Why isn't He mentioned here? He's there. He's there. He's watching from a distance. He sees what's going on. Nothing is escaping His notice, but none of these social, none of these technological advancements are being done for the glory of God. This is all being done for the glory and the well-being and the prosperity of man. This city is godless. It is godless. And things really start to get interesting when we start to learn about this man named Lamech, the sixth generation of Cain. First of all, we see that he is a polygamist. He's got two wives. And this completely breaks God's design for marriage. If you'll remember, marriage is a monogamous, lifelong covenant between one biological male and one biological female. That is how God designed marriage. That's how Jesus affirmed God designed marriage. But once, once you abandon God, you abandon his order in creation. You abandon his design for things. And if you're sleeping, you may not have noticed, but that is exactly what we see happening across Western culture right now. So marriage in this city of Enoch, marriage has been hijacked and it's been redefined by man. And the consequence is sexual immorality is apparently rampant in the city of Enoch. The children of Lamech make enormous progress in farming animals, in creating musical instruments, and in creating instruments 
but that word can also refer to weapons. Notice that none of these people, none of these generations worked the ground. None of them worked the ground. Cain's curse was that the ground would not provide nourishment for him anymore. And here we go. Nothing's coming from the ground, but they are eating animals. And who makes the weapons? This is interesting. Who makes the weapons? A man who was apparently so hard-hearted and so evil that they felt that it was appropriate to tack Cain's name onto his. Tubal Cain. And it's not that these things, it's not that any of these things that we see as advancements, it's not that any of these things are bad necessarily in and of themselves. Technology isn't a bad thing necessarily, but it can be. Technology and advancement can be a very bad thing. It can be a good thing, but it's very easily a bad thing too. The determining factor is found in what it's being used for. What is it being used for? The idolatry of man or the glory of God? Is it being used to fuel the illusion of human autonomy? Is it being used to propagate the idea that we don't need God? Think about it. We face the exact same thing in our culture. We are a tech-savvy city. We are a tech-savvy culture, especially up here in the Northwest. The same technology, though, that makes it possible to put sermons online, to put the gospel online, also makes it possible to put sinful material online. A microchip can be a very helpful thing if you've lost your dog you know, they, they put the microchip in, in the, the back of your, of your dog, and so if you lose your dog and he gets found, they scan it. Oh, this belongs to so-and-so. That's a great thing. But that same type of technology can also be used to guide a ballistic missile through your bedroom window. The same guitar that we use to worship God, that we use to lead worship unto God, could be used to sing songs about hating God. Or it could just be, song, it could just be used to, to play songs that have nothing to do with God. So whether something is good or bad is determined by how it's used. And that's one of the first things that we learned in our study of Genesis as we saw that as we go through the days of creation, God is saying, this is good, this is good, this is good. The thing that makes something good or not is whether it's being used in the context for which God created it. And friends, every single molecule in the universe was created for the glory of God. Every molecule. Music, agriculture, arts, technology. Can these things be used for the glory of God? Absolutely. But we have to understand that to use it for a purpose other than glorifying God is sin. The city of Enoch is flourishing, and they are prospering, and they are making all kinds of advancements, but this city is just godless to the core. And prosperity without faithfulness unto God is worthless. 
Where is the city of Enoch now? We have no idea. It's buried. For many people, prosperity is the most desirable thing. And yet, for many people, it is the worst thing that could happen to them. Because prosperity can very easily give us a lens through which we see ourselves as not needing God. We see ourselves as completely autonomous. Prosperity can very easily give us a lens through which we see nothing wrong with ourselves and no need for God's grace. And so with that said, we have to remember that it is better to be poor and faithful than it is to be prosperous and faithless. It's better to be poor and faithful than it is to prosper and be faithless. It's better to be a a tent dweller or a cave dweller who obeys and believes God than it is to have a huge house, an extravagant lifestyle, a fat paycheck in which prosperity is the only God before whom you will bend your knee. Financial or worldly prosperity isn't always a sign of God's blessing. Sometimes it is a sign of God's curse. In our flesh, we want to believe that prosperity is a sign of God's blessing. We are more inclined to believe that God loves us and that God is for us when we are prospering than we are when we are persecuted. And there are certainly exceptions throughout Scripture, but throughout Scripture, we see a lot of people prospering in accordance with their own wickedness. And it could be argued that Israel's greatest time of prosperity in the Bible came under the direction of King Solomon, who was a godless leader. He was a godless leader. He was the wisest man who ever lived, yes. But he also made some of the most ungodly, stupid decisions of any ancient king in Israel. And yet, as Israel grew in their prosperity, in their self-sufficiency, what happened? They fell away from God. They slipped into idolatry over and over and over again for generations. Jeremiah pondered this principle of the wicked prospering. And so he says to God in Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Let's just stop there. Even when we complain, he can take it. He's still righteous. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? I don't know about you, but I've asked God the same questions. And the answer is really found in places like like Judges or Daniel Or Romans 1, where God hands people over to that which they desire the most. If if they want prosperity, he will hand them over to prosperity for their demise. If they want to worship another God, he'll hand them over to that other God to their demise. And they prosper. Because money is the idol that lures them further and further and further away from God. 
It's what they want more than anything else. They want it more than they want God, and God turns them over to it at a cost, at a very high cost. The soul. The soul. God will allow someone to gain the whole world and yet lose their soul. And we can't say that that isn't fair because the individual who rejects God and seeks to gain the world wouldn't want to have it any other way. That's exactly what they want God to do. And yet, what good is it to gain every treasure in the world if it costs you your soul? What good is it if it costs you an eternity in hell? Listen to what the psalmist Asaph says in Psalms chapter 73. Psalm 73 verses 1 and 2, he says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Time out. He's confessing that he almost stumbled here. So let's make sure that we caught the fact that he's on the verge of sinning. He's, he's confessing that he's on the verge of sinning. The question then that we should be asking ourselves when we see that is, how, Asaph, how did you almost stumble? And he tells us, verses 3 to 5, he says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Why were you envious? For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Mm. Who is Asaph envious of? He's envious of the wicked. He's envious of the wicked because they are prospering and because they don't have the same problems that the righteous have. And this isn't to say that you can't be poor and godless. You can be, but poverty itself isn't something that Satan is going to put on the hook to lure you in to godlessness. The devil isn't going to bait the hook of spiritual darkness with something that doesn't appeal to you. So unless poverty appeals to you, the average person, ourselves included, I would imagine, finds prosperity a lot more appealing than poverty. So we have to remain humble especially in regards to our prosperity, with our eyes fixed on God. Here's something to think about. As the influence of Christianity in America has diminished dramatically, as it's been minimized here in America, the size of the average American home has grown to about three times what it was in 1950. And it's not because we have bigger families. No, to the contrary, the average American family has gotten significantly smaller. George Carlin, famous comedian, joked, that's the whole meaning of life, isn't it? Trying to find a place for your stuff. That's all your house is. A place to keep your stuff while you go out and get more stuff. Sometimes you've got to move. You've got to get a bigger house. Why? Because you've got too much stuff. We've got stuff all right. We've got lots of stuff 
America has prospered during this time in which the influence of the church has declined. We have prospered like no society in history. The question is, do we think that our prosperity is a sign of God's blessing? Does that seem off to you? Have we considered the possibility that it's been God's wrath against our culture, against our nation, that has allowed us to prosper, that he's handed us over to our idol? And here's the big thing. Here's the question for you. Are you willing to forsake prosperity if that is the cost of faithfulness unto God? Because prosperity without faithfulness unto God, is worthless. It is a trap. Don't miss what Asaph said here in Psalm 73. Not only do the wicked seem to prosper, but he sees, and the rest of Scripture reveals elsewhere, that God's people will face hardships in this world that the wicked won't. And Jesus confirmed that. He said, in this world you will have troubles. But he has overcome. Look around you. Look around the culture. Look at the culture that we're we're surrounded by. The wicked are prospering in ways that the world hasn't seen since the decline of the Roman Empire. And the righteous, the people who have a desire to be faithful unto God, they are experiencing troubles across the globe like we haven't seen before, at least in this country, at least in this generation. So you might be left with the question, well, then why would I want to be a Christian? Why would I want to be faithful unto God if it means I'm going to have trouble and if it might mean that I'm not going to be as prosperous as I would be if I weren't a follower of Jesus? Why would anyone want to be a Christian? Because there is only one God. There is only one God. And while God has many paths at His disposal for drawing people to His Son, Jesus Christ, nobody comes to God except through faith in Jesus Christ alone. We bear the cost of discipleship because there is no other way to be forgiven of our sins but through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has told us that if we want to be forgiven, we must believe, we must have faith in the Lord Jesus. We bear the cost of following Jesus because we aren't greater than Jesus. A servant isn't greater than his master. And Jesus faced scorn and ridicule for the sake of redeeming us. We bear the cost of following Jesus because life, friends, life is very, very, very short. And you and I, you and I are just a vapor in the wind. We are here today and we are gone tomorrow. But eternity is long. Eternity is long. Let's imagine. Any of you guys like reality TV shows? I mean, everybody loves reality TV shows, right? Somebody's back there saying no. Whatever. You're, you're, you're not like anybody else. <laughs> but we love you anyway. Imagine that you get invited to be on a reality game show on TV in which you could win 
an unthinkably great treasure. And just to, to put a, a number on that, just to give us an image, let's just say it's $200 million. $200 million you can win on this show. The only catch is that you have to live as a homeless person for the next two months. That means no bathing. That means no clean bathrooms, no clean clothes, no warm bed to sleep on. And, and worst of all, no internet. And if you can last these two months, you will win this hypothetical prize, $200 million. You will be set for life with that money. And of course, the average person would would think, okay, what would I have to do? I survive for two months. Well, I, I've gone camping before, so yeah, a little bit of discomfort. I can, I, can be dis- I can be uncomfortable for a while for the sake of winning $200 million so that I'm just rolling in it for the rest of my life. They would be happy to endure a short time of suffering for a prize that great. Enduring suffering and hardship for a short time, we understand is worth the reward if the reward is great enough. So why be a Christian? Why be faithful unto God when it can cost you? Why should you follow Jesus? Because enduring hardship and suffering for the sake of Christ and for the sake of gaining eternity with Christ is worth it. Because, man, if you would do it for $200 million, Jesus is a hundred gazillion times better. This world, this world was the closest thing to heaven that Cain would ever experience. Cain found comfort, Cain found prosperity in the city that he built, unlike the people of God, who can say with Asaph, when you get down to verses 25 and 26, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Unlike Cain and those who follow after his likeness, the people of God seek and wait for a city, according to Hebrews chapter 11 verse 10, whose designer and builder is God. We say with the author of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. What is the city? It's the city of God that we see introduced in the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation chapter 21. That's the city we seek. So Cain's descendants prospered greatly. They made great advancements. And they did nothing until we get to Lamech. We're going to get to him. They did nothing that we would label as inherently evil. But the fact is, God was the farthest thing from their minds. So they were godless. They were godless. He's not in their plans. His reality isn't reflected in any of their thoughts or their deeds. He's so far away from their minds. Are you any different? They lived for this world. They lived for the things of this world. Are you living for this world? The principle here is such such an important one for us to get. We have to live with an eternal perspective. We have to keep our eyes on the prize, so to speak. 
keeping our eyes on Christ. Lest we'd be distracted by all the beautiful and shimmering things in this world that are just temporary, fleeting things that the world has to offer. Lest we be lured in by how good prosperity seems until we die and all the things that we lived for don't come with us. We lose them forever. This society formed by Cain followed him in lawlessness. And next we're going to see what a lawless beast of a man Lamech was. Verses 23 and 24. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And this is just a brief glimpse of the justice system in the city of Enoch. Now, we recognize that this is a song because each line, as you'll see, is is kind of repeated but reworded. And that's typical of ancient Hebrew poetry and song. And you might think, man, it is ridiculous for this guy to be singing a song about murdering somebody, except that that's the type of music that flourishes in our society. Our kids are listening to the same stuff. And worse, they're listening. There are songs out there about killing people and about doing every sin you can imagine. And kids these days love it. Lamech sings a song to his two wives in which he boasts of murdering a young man for striking him. But the disturbing part in this is that the wording in the original language indicates that this was not just this was not a young man. This was a child. It's the same word that can be translated boy, who may have simply bumped into Lamech. And Lamech is so bold, he thinks that if God would avenge Cain's death sevenfold, then surely God would avenge Lamech's death seventy-sevenfold. And yet, look, look at what he says. He doesn't even mention God. He doesn't even mention God. He implies that God would be the one avenging his death, but he's not explicit about it. He wants God's protection, but he's not going to speak God's name. He's not going to acknowledge God. He's not going to obey God. And I would say, as Aerosmith would say, dream on, dream on. You want God's protection without being obedient unto God? Dream on. See, societies like individual people will reap what they sow. And when a culture, when a nation rejects God and glorifies human accomplishment, immorality and lawlessness are the harvest. When you combine this with great prosperity, the wickedness is exacerbated. It's like pouring fuel on a fire. This is exactly what we see all around us, going on in America today. And the point in all of this is that man, apart from God, is desperately, desperately wicked. People are not basically good. We are basically, fundamentally, foundationally evil. We need a Savior. 
We need a Savior. The Bible tells us that all fall short of the glory of God. All sin. We need a Savior. We need God's grace. And the good news is that God is a graceful God. So the chapter concludes with this, verses 25 and 26. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So God grants Adam and Eve another child whom they named Seth, which means appointed. And the idea behind his name, the significance of his name, is that Adam and Eve are acknowledging that God is sovereign over their sorrows. He's aware of it, and he gives them something to comfort them. He gives them another child. Put yourself in Adam and Eve's shoes for a moment. I imagine that neither Adam nor Eve would have ever imagined that their fall into sin would result in a son being murdered, would result in a godless city being built as a testimony to the greatness of man rather than for the glory of God. I can only imagine that it broke their hearts to see the way that the world was going during their lifetime. But they also knew, they also had faith, they also had a confidence in the fact that God was still with them. And their faith in God continued to grow. Adam and Eve had many, many children, but Seth is mentioned by name because he more or less took Abel's place. And Seth would be the chosen one through whom the promise of this offspring who would defeat sin and death would pass. The birth of Seth's child apparently coincided with this first great revival. The first time when people would start calling on the name of the Lord. And what a blessed thing that is to see when people start calling on the name of the Lord. While there was great evil in one part of the earth, in Cain's city, in Enoch, God was in the midst of all this mess that was growing on earth and he was working out his perfect plan in spite of it. The presence of God's grace is clearly seen in the birth of Seth. Cain's descendants pioneered music, arts, and weaponry and tools and so on, but the descendants of Seth worshipped God. They called upon the name of the Lord. The prophet Joel would tell us that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? That's a good question. That's a very important question for us to ask. If you go through the first five books of the Bible, Moses makes it clear that to call upon means to proclaim. To proclaim, to speak of, to announce, to preach. In fact, the phrase call upon here gets translated proclaim 36 times throughout the Old Testament. So they are proclaiming the name of the Lord. The idea is that Seth's line of descendants worshipped God and they proclaimed the name of the Lord. Why do you proclaim anything? Why do you announce or preach anything? 
Because you believe it. Because you believe it. From the lips flow what's abundant in the heart. These are a people whose hearts are filled with faith in God. So what we see here is that there are two kingdoms rising. If you had lived in the city of Enoch, you might have thought there is no God. Or if you thought there was a God, you might have just thought, well, God isn't interested in us or he's given up on humanity. No, the city of Enoch had turned away from God. They had given up on God. But God was rising, raising up a people for himself elsewhere. Friends, this shows us what God's people have always, always been known for and believing in. They've always been known for and they've always believed in and proclaimed the name, the character, the attributes, the essence, the nature of the Lord. And this is what sets us apart. This is what makes us distinct from the kingdom of Cain. As society advanced, it declined. As it began to rise, it continued to fall. As physical life flourished, spiritual death was rampant. And this gives us an interesting and biblical perspective of humanity when man lives for his own glory and for his own good. His own good isn't good at all. The only hope that we have is to call upon the name of the Lord, to believe and to proclaim that Jesus Christ reigns and that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Even, even if it costs you everything that this world has to offer. To gain Christ is to gain everything. To gain Christ is to gain God's grace. To gain Christ is to gain forgiveness from God. To gain Christ is to gain everlasting life. To gain Christ is to gain every heavenly blessing, according to Ephesians chapter 1. Prosperity without faithfulness unto God is worthless because all the things of this world will still be here when you're gone. They will not go with you. All the things of this world will pass away. And for that reason, friends, if the things of this world become our idols, they will necessarily disappoint us every single time. You might not even realize you're disappointed because you've been so disappointed by other things that you don't even realize how disappointing it is to live for the things of this world. They will never, the things of this world will never satisfy the deepest longings that you have in your hearts. The human heart always wants more and more and more of the thing that it loves the most. And the thing is, the things that you love the most in this world are finite. So they can't keep giving you more and more pleasure. Only God is infinite. Only God is infinite. And so only God can give you more and more and more and more of himself. We therefore must repent of the selfish desire to live like Cain and to live like his descendants who loved and lived for their own glory and the things of this world. And we must believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who bore the sin of all who would trust in him, who bore the wrath of God and satisfied the wrath of God on behalf of all of his people who would believe in him. We must believe in him. 
For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being such a good and gracious God. We thank you, Lord, that though we have violated your law, though we have sinned against you in every way imaginable, you've made a promise of redemption. And you've promised us that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf and to bear the wrath that we deserve against our sins on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you for grace. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, that you are working all things for the good of your people, even when it might not look like it on the surface. So teach us, Lord, not to love prosperity, but to love you first and foremost. And whatever may come, whatever may follow, we will accept. Give us a willingness to accept whatever the cost of faithfulness may be, Lord, that we may glorify you. In Christ's name we pray. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.